0: The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, April 2nd at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. I just want to extend a couple kind of representative thank yous this morning um, for all of you who are here, and it's too numerous for me to name or or, or try to point out directly, but for all of you that were here that made our first middle school, high school retreat possible last weekend, uh, I just want to say on behalf of all the families, thank you. Yeah. Um, If your bulletin is like mine, you've got like a Smurf edition of the picture on the back. I think our our printer toner might be a little bit off. Um, Those were gray shirts, not blue, but... Um, You guys made it possible for our kids to be together in a way uh, and experience the life of God's people together in a unique way. And it's going to leave an indelible imprint of God's kindness and love and mercy on their hearts. And just thank you uh, as a parent, not even as a pastor here, but as a parent for making that a reality. And it took so many of you to do it. So thank you. Uh, And you may not know, but while that team was on the middle school and high school retreat, uh, Pastor Mark, who probably already slipped out, was here earlier, uh, led another team of nearly 20 adults uh, to Berkeley Springs, West Virginia, where they spent the entire weekend not on a retreat, but doing manual labor at a brand new church plant there in Berkeley Springs, to help them get their facility ready for their very first Easter Sunday service next week. Uh, Yeah. And so, again, I I risk missing names, so I won't name them. But those of you that were able to be a part of that, thank you uh, for going and demonstrating and exuding the humility and the love uh, and the servanthood of Jesus uh, to the broader church there in Berkeley Springs. Thank you very much. Um, I I know I've already heard from Ricky uh, of of just how thankful they are for the time that you were able to spend with them. Uh, And then lastly, you know, Last night, Redemption Hill's first ever. Redemption Hill's got talent show. Yeah. Again, it's been a it's been a fun and busy season in the life of the church. And and so the team that made that possible, you guys, unbelievable. Uh, It was rolled out, red carpet, and and I'm looking around. It filled the place. If you didn't clap because you weren't there, you don't know. It filled the place. It was amazing. We had dancing, we had singing, we had stand-up comedy, we had all kinds of things. It was awesome. Um, And so for the team involved in making that a reality, looking around Phillips, Bannisters, Crockett's, DeBoer's, Abbott's, thank you. That was amazing. We had a chance to actually be together and enjoy one another in a unique way that without that labor, without that service, we wouldn't have had. So that was amazing. Thank you so much. So um, it's been a fun, fun season, fun spring. Um, which also means this morning we are in the midst of spring and we are one week away from Easter Sunday, which is typically that, you know, high point of the spring season, in the spring calendar, which means this morning is Palm Sunday, as you've already heard. It's the week before Easter, which also means that it is the last Sunday of the season of Lent. And in the season of Lent, we have been exploring God's invitation to us to follow him, follow his son to life into his kingdom. And so I thought this morning, as we kind of wrap up the season of Lent, prepare for Easter Sunday and the spring season coming, we would just spend some time in God's word this morning, joining and kind of journeying with Jesus from that very first Palm Sunday, so to speak, to a few days later where he would lay his life down in our place for our sin on the cross. So If you've got your Bibles, why don't you open them up to the gospel according to John? John chapter 12. We're going to be in two places primarily this morning John 12 and Matthew 27 in just a little while. I'll just give you a heads up. But we're going to start in John chapter 12. And we'll start in verse 12. John tells us that the next day he's following the story of Jesus' journey into Jerusalem for this final Passover. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, that's Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So there's this large crowd that's come to to Jerusalem for the Passover. And they've heard that Jesus is coming to Passover. And with Jesus, there's a crowd that's been journeying with him in Galilee, listening to him and following him. And now they're all converging together there in Jerusalem for Passover. And as they hear that Jesus is coming, they literally go out and begin to sing a quotation of Psalm 118. This great messianic promise of God and hope of God's people that the King, the Messiah... He's going to come, the king of Israel. And the religious leaders, this is the very thing they were wondering, is, is Jesus going to now finally be clear that this is who he says he is? You know, in John chapter 6, John tells us that there was a moment in Jesus' ministry when the crowds that were with him were trying to conspire to take him by force and make him their king. We're going to make you the king that's going to deliver us from Roman occupation, but Jesus wouldn't let them do it, and he slipped away. Well, now here he is coming into the Passover. They're singing, Hosanna. Salvation is here. Even the king of Israel and the religious leaders have got to be wondering, well, is he going to receive it, or is he, is he going to slip away again? So John tells us in verse 14 that Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Well, there you go. No more wondering. Jesus is now acting in a way that fulfills the long awaited prophecy of the king of Israel from Zechariah 9 9. It's Jesus' own way of saying, Yep, it's me. It's me. I'm him. Now, John tells us in verse 16, it's a little parenthetical kind of, that his disciples didn't even understand this at first, but when Jesus was later glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So they weren't even immediately aware. But verse 17, back into the story, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone out after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. So John is helping us to see now more clearly that Jesus is not just israel's long-awaited messiah long-awaited king his kingdom encompasses the entirety of creation the pharisees were more profound and more right than even they realized when they said look the world has gone out after him john is helping us in this moment see who jesus really is now the story picks up in verse 22 Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Went and told him what? Well, there were these men who were wanting to see him, right? They, they wanted to have some time with Jesus. And Jesus answered them. Here's his answer to their request. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Here's my answer to their request that I take my time and divert my course to come and see them. If I did that, if I diverted the direction that I am on in order to fulfill their request, like that seed, I'd remain alone, not in the ground. And the fruit that I have come to bear, salvation for both the Jew and the Greek, it won't come to pass if I were to divert my course to fulfill their request the very purpose for which I came would not come to pass but here's what I want them to see let them know here's what I want them to see whoever loves his life verse 25 loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life if anyone serves me he must follow me Now, where is he headed? To the cross. He must follow me. And where I am going, where is he going? He's going to be with his father in glory. There will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Here's what I want them to see, right? They want some time with me. Here's what I want them to see. And here's what I want them to know. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Does it sound remotely familiar to anything else that we've heard in the last several weeks? If anyone would come after me, Jesus has said, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You want to be with me? That means following me where I'm going. You want to be with me? It means dying daily to those desires in your heart that drive you to build the kingdom of your own name to such a degree that to the world around you, it looks like you hate your life. That's how he says it here in John. Denying that tendency and proclivity in our hearts to build our own kingdoms. If you want to see me, if you want to be with me, if you want to follow me, if you want to come after me, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And what we've seen for the last several weeks during the Lenten season is that it's hard to die to yourself. It's not easy. It's hard to hate your life in this world. Follow Jesus to the cross. To serve him with your whole heart and your life and not yourself. But listen, what we've seen week after week, if we've considered the invitation of Jesus and all the things that get in the way, and the proclivity of our own heart to want to serve ourselves instead, what we've seen over and over is that he's worth it. Are you even hear him here in John. He's worth it. In this death, there's real fruit. There's nothing that we die to in this world that in the light of his eternal generosity could ever be seen as real loss. So here again, now, on the, on the verge of the cross, now this last week of his life on earth, entering into Jerusalem, hear his invitation one more time. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. His invitation is to die daily to the tendency and the desires to establish your own name and kingdom. His invitation is to follow him on his road to the cross, taking up daily your cross, serving him. And when we do, we find, he says, that much fruit will be born. As we do, we'll increasingly look like him. As we do, we keep our lives, he says, for eternal life. Nothing is truly lost. As we do, we join him where he is in glory. His invitation is to come and be with him, to follow him, to life with him in his kingdom now and for all of eternity. And so here in John 12, we've got the crowds that have been with him in Galilee in his ministry, following him. They've heard this invitation over and over again in all of the sermons that he's given. And now they're entering into Jerusalem for the Passover where the crowds who've heard that he's coming are coming out to meet him. And together they all sing and proclaim, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Together, they're all receiving him as king. Yet, by the end of the week, many from this crowd will be in another crowd that cry out something entirely different. They'll cry out for his crucifixion. Flip over to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 27. I'm going to pick the story up just a, a few days later. And there's a couple of things in Matthew's account of the story that I think are important. So, Matthew chapter 27, we're a few days later now. After the arrest of Jesus, the betrayal of Jesus by one of his own, you get Matthew 27, verse 15. Now, at the feast, talking about Passover, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? For he knew, speaking of Pilate, that it was only out of envy that they had delivered him, Jesus, who they call the Christ, up. So here's what caught me, and it may catch some of you who are sitting there. If you're using what's arguably the most common translation of the Bible right now in the world, which is the NIV translation, as you read Matthew 27, when we read verse 15, when Pilate says, who do you want me to release for you? It's going to say, Jesus Barabbas, or Jesus who was called the Christ. And here's what caught me as we were going through it. Barabbas in Aramaic, in the language of the day, means son of the father. And what Pilate just said is, who do you want? Jesus Barabbas, Jesus son of the father, or Jesus son of the father? The one you call the Christ. Which Jesus do you want? It was a choice between two Jesuses. That's what was going on here. One Jesus, Jesus Barabbas, was a notorious man known for his violence and his insurrection against the Roman authorities, imprisoned for murder and leading a rebellion. One who would try to lead God's people, lead the Israelites in rebellion against Rome. That's what the people wanted, right? The other, Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, that's what you call him, you welcomed him into the city days ago, crying out salvation is here, but he's right here, imprisoned. Which do you want? Which Jesus do you want me to give you? The choice is yours. Do you want the one who seems to be going after the very thing your heart really desires, who's fitting all the expectations and hopes that you have, who's pursuing your ends of building the kingdom that you have in your mind, which Jesus do you want? As I was thinking about this Sunday morning and what we've been talking about the last several weeks, I I felt like this particular moment in the ministry and life of Jesus was so important. Because you and I face the same choice nearly every day. Which Jesus do we want? Which Jesus is it that we actually want to follow? The one that calls us to deny ourselves daily of the temptation and the desire to build our own kingdoms? That calls us to follow him, to serve him? Or do we want the one who fits our manageable expectations and wants? Which Jesus do we want? As we've considered week after week his invitation to the fullness of life with him in his kingdom. What it means to sing, Hosanna, salvation has come. We've considered that there are also alternatives. Siren songs. Are you familiar with that statement, that phrase, siren songs? It's mythological sirens in Greek mythology that as sailors were out at sea, these sirens would sing these tempting and enticing songs that had this kind of hold over the sailors. And if the sailors didn't literally lash themselves to the mast of the boat, they were given to steering the ship in the direction of those sirens to utter shipwreck, right? Right? songs of the siren that led to their own destruction, that there are songs out there, enticing and tempting narratives that ultimately only lead to the own destruction of our joy and soul. We've considered a handful of them the last several weeks, and there's one last we'll consider this last Sunday morning of Lent, one last plausible lie one last pseudo-Jesus, so to speak, that might be the most enticing because in itself, it mixes together, it harmonizes the stories and the songs of all the other things we've looked at the last few weeks. It sings the song of the advancement of our own kingdoms. It's a, a song, a siren song that... Some researchers and scholars have said has literally colonized American Christianity. One writer said it's a new civil religion that seduces its converts who never have to leave their church or their Christian identification as they embrace this new faith in all of its undemanding dimensions. Undemanding dimensions. Nothing to deny. No cross to bear. No following somewhere else wherever they're going to take you. Those same researchers have said that this particular Christianity, this colonization that's taking place in the American church is either degenerating into a pathetic vision of itself or more significantly, it's actively being colonized and displaced by an entirely different religious faith. It has a name but the name isn't important because if there were a list of things that you were asked whether or not you adhered to or believed you would never self-consciously check off this name because the reality of it is this siren song is one that's more caught more absorbed more taken in than it is just mentally adhered to. It's a new faith that's made up entirely of what you could call an easy moralism. Its aim in life is that you and I just become nicer, better people, busy about becoming a better person. The chief end of man in this new pseudo version of Christianity is that we're just kind, To be a good Christian and a good church member, a good follower then, means that you're a nice person who's simply focused on your own personal growth and self-improvement. There's no cost to its morality. Just be sure you're always trying to do good so that you feel good about yourself. Keep things positive. Right? God's nice. We should be nice. 50 something years ago, the writer Flannery O'Connor warned against what she called a prevailing heresy in the American church over 50 years ago. And it was the relentlessness, she said, of keeping things nice or positive. Flannery said she feared this positivity and this relentless niceness would cause Christians to forget the real price of restoration. Be good. Be kind, be nice, get better. This new American faith is one that's just a feel fuzzy, feel good, make sure you feel affirmed and okay about yourself faith. Writer James Nolan said, where once the self was to be surrendered, denied, sacrificed, and died to. Sounds like Jesus' invitation, right? Right? There was a time at which we understood this to be true of ourselves. Now, the self is to be esteemed, actualized, affirmed, and unfettered. This new American Christianity that is colonizing the church from the inside is really just an invitation to spiritual narcissism. It's really all it is. One scholar, not a member of the church, psychologist, Jean Twinge, she writes that American culture's focus on self-admiration has caused a flight from reality to the land of grandiose fantasy. That's what happens in this new blend of spiritual narcissism. It leaves us living in a land that isn't real. She says this whole thing has left us moving from reality to the land of grandiose fantasy. Listen to how she describes it. We have phony rich people, who have interest-only mortgages and piles of debt. Phony beauty, full of plastic surgeries and diet pills. Phony athletes, pumped full of performance-enhancing drugs. Phony celebrities, via reality TV and YouTube. Phony genius students, with grade inflation and false applications to schools. A phony national economy, riddled with tens of trillions of government debt. Phony feelings of being special amongst other children with parenting and education focused solely on self-esteem and phony friends with social networking explosions all around us and all this fantasy might feel good. But unfortunately, reality always wins. Reality always wins. But we've been seduced by a song that leaves us living in a world of fantasy. And when reality comes, we're not prepared for it. Again, no no word for the church in particular, but University of South Alabama psychology professor Joshua Foster ran a study about eight years ago of students in the university according to the Narcissistic Personality Inventory. He asked a series of students, hundreds of students at the University of South Alabama, to rate the accuracy of various narcissistic statements, such as, I can live my life any way I want to, and if I ruled the world, it would be a better place. After five years of doing this research amongst college age students, Foster says that no group anywhere in the world has ever scored higher in narcissism than the American teenager. In and out of the church. And the question is, who do they learn it from? I mean, there's no school, there's no high school, elementary school, college, home, or church that sits down in a curriculum of direct narcissism. But it's absorbed from someone. It's modeled by someone The dominant religion in America is one about feeling good, secure, and at peace. Its chief end is a subjective well-being that leaves us being just nicer and kinder people. And if we hit a bump along the way to becoming a nicer, kinder, better person, we can always ring the bell for God, like Mr. Belvedere, to come and help us. I just dated myself, didn't I? You don't really know who Mr. Belvedere is, do you? Thanks, Dr. D. Right? You don't really know. Listen, according to the 2021 American Worldview Inventory, 82% of Americans polled thinks that God helps those who help themselves, is a direct quote from the Bible. 22% who are a part of the inventory. Now, we're talking about people who are also part of the church. say they feel close to God in their heart. That He's close to them and they are close to Him. Yet later in the same inventory, when asked to respond to other questions, they would say directly that He's not involved in any way in the affairs of the world in which they live. He's close to me, but He has nothing to do with the world in which I live. 65% 65% of those who participated in this poll, when this was tens of thousands of people, 65% claim to be Christians. Yet 91% don't believe that people are born into sin and need to be saved by Jesus. 76% say that good people can earn their way into heaven. 73% say having some type of religious faith is more important than which faith you have. 87% do not believe that their sole purpose in life is to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. 61%, I thought this was fascinating given what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, 61% had zero moral issue with materialism and consumerism. And the scholars who, who did this over the course of eight years Writing in the summary, said the new American Christianity is generally optimistic, comforting forms of religious faith, albeit one based on a twisted version of Christianity that emphasizes the self rather than God and relies on emotion rather than the truth. God is a powerful but dispassionate overseer who remains detached from human experience unless circumstances make him the solution of a last resort. Life is about personal happiness and whatever action producing positive personal outcomes gives meaning and purpose to life. It asks little of its followers while providing the comfort, convenience, and community those followers long for. You hear that? Personal experience over knowledge, choice over absolutes, preference over truth, comfort over growth, faith on our own terms, ultimately enthroning ourselves as the final arbiter of what is right. Right? The chief end of man then is to glorify ourselves and enjoy ourselves forever as we live on the project of building kingdom me. And if I hit a bump and get in the way, I can always ring the bell. And the God who's near to me but not involved in anything else will come and help fix it. And if we just keep doing that day by day, everything will work out okay. Pilate looked at the crowd. And he said, who do you want me to give you? Who do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, Jesus Barabbas, or Jesus who is called the Christ. Which Jesus do you want? Which one do you want me to release for you? Which one are you choosing? Which one are you rejecting? Which one are you choosing? And Matthew tells us the crowd said, We want Jesus Barabbas. I want the Jesus that makes no demands on me. We want the Jesus that fits all of our longings and desires and expectations for what a Messiah is supposed to be. Like Mark prayed a little bit earlier, I want the Jesus that I want. That's what I want. I want the Jesus that... Ask for no self-denial, no repentance, no following of him wherever he goes. You see, Jesus, the real Jesus, the one you call the Messiah, the truth, he would demand certain things. If you want me, if you want to follow me, if you want to be with me, if you want life with me in my kingdom, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to put to death daily, project me. You've got to put to death daily all the inclinations and the impulses and the temptations to continue to building the kingdom of yourself. But the crowd wanted a Jesus that didn't require anything of them. The crowd wanted the Jesus to let them do whatever they wanted. The crowd wanted the Jesus that deceived them into thinking they could have their cake, their own kingdoms, and eat it too. It's a siren song that, as enticing and tempting as it sounds, only leads to shipwreck. And only leads to destruction. See, Jesus, the Messiah, the real Jesus, comes along and with him comes the truth. And the truth is exposing. That's what it is. The truth in in all of its glory exposes just how blind and how self-deceived we are. The real Jesus in an act of kindness and mercy and grace helps us to see that we're not quite as good and nice as we think we are. And in the kindness and mercy of his exposure, helping us to see what's really going on in our hearts, here's the decision and the temptation we have. We can receive the exposure and the shock to our own system of how sinful and needy we really are and how bent we are in trying to build a kingdom for ourselves and we can see it and we can own it and we can confess it and we can turn to him in the kindness of his grace or... We can run as fast as we can anywhere that we can find someone else or something else to affirm what we think about ourselves. We can avoid the exposure and the confession and the repentance and all the potential of life with him and run right after that siren song telling me how good, nice, smart, and gosh darn it people like me. The choice is there. The crowd chose the wrong Jesus. They made the very selfish, comfortable choice. With Barabbas, they didn't have to submit to a new kingdom. They didn't have to deny themselves. They didn't have to follow someone wherever he would go. Maybe they just had to start locking their doors at night because he was a little dangerous and unpredictable, right? But he didn't demand a change in their life. He didn't bring with him the exposure of their own sin. Choosing the real Jesus, the Messiah, means that from that moment forward, everything about how we lived, every single moment of every single day was going to change. One writer said, it just feels so much easier to just pat myself on the back and choose Barabbas and be able to say, look, I still set a prisoner free. I still did okay. He was in prison, but because I chose him, he got to be free. I I still did a good thing. Friends, we're still rejecting the real Jesus today, just like the crowds. For a pseudo Jesus, listen. Verse twenty-two. Pilate said to him, "What do you want me to do with Jesus, who you you called the Christ days ago? Part of that crowd was singing on his way in. Salvation is here. The King, the Messiah, is here. What do you want me to do with him now?" And they all sang a very different song right here in unison together, four-part harmony. Let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. Verse 24, Matthew tells us that Pilate took water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered. Here's the chorus of the song. His blood be on us and on our children. So Pilate released for them the Jesus they wanted. He gave them the Jesus that they wanted. And having scourged the real Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. Let his blood be on us. He's not my king. He's not my Messiah. I don't know in all the times you've ever heard the story or read the story, have you ever considered how like the crowd in the story you can be? I want the Jesus that makes no demands on me. I want the Jesus that doesn't expose all the dark realities in my heart. I want the Jesus that doesn't lead me into any kind of real change. I want the Jesus that's there when I need him to build my name and my kingdom and my prosperity. Of all the times, if you grew up in the church or you've been in the church, you've ever heard the stories, especially on Palm Sundays or Holy Week leading to Easter, have you ever considered just how like the crowd you can be in your own heart? If you ever give yourself a moment to... Maybe you'll be just as overjoyed as I was this week when I realized again that this isn't where the story ends. See, even though the crowd decided to save Barabbas instead of Jesus, they didn't lash themselves to the mast like those sailors, and they followed that song, that enticing song that only leads to their own destruction. Though they didn't choose to save the real Jesus, Jesus chose to save them instead of himself. They chose to release and save Jesus Barabbas. But the real Jesus chose to save them instead of himself. They called for him to be crucified. They rejected him. But in a matter of hours from this point, he would die for them god would show his love for us paul said and that while we were still sinners standing there in the crowd saying i want that jesus i want the jesus that's going to let me do whatever i want i want the jesus that really makes no demands on me i want the jesus who lets me build my own kingdom and call it his I want the Jesus who lets me have the kingdom promises about him being the king lets me get to be the king. God shows his infinite and eternal love for us and that while we're still standing in the crowd day by day choosing the wrong Jesus, the real Jesus, his son died in our place for our sin. He died for us. I love the way the New Living Translation translates Romans 8, 3, where it says, God sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. To the crowd they didn't get the last word let him be crucified let his blood be on us and our kids can you imagine they didn't get the last word while we were still crying out for a Jesus who is no Jesus the real Jesus held nothing back in his love, and died in our place for us while we were rejecting him. And in the kindness and grace of God, he opens up our eyes to see what Paul says is the knowledge of his glory in the face of his son, the real Jesus. He gives us eyes to finally see the real Jesus ears to finally hear the real invitation to life. And for all who would receive him by his precious blood that he spilled on that cross, you and I are forgiven, set free, and welcomed into his kingdom. John Flavel, the great theologian, said, the intent of the Redeemer's undertaking in sending his son to live the life that we were created to live and to die the death that we deserve to die. there's spend three days in the grave only to rise in victory over Satan's sin and death. The real, the real intent of the Redeemer's undertaking in that was not to purchase for his people riches, ease, and pleasure on earth. It wasn't to purchase for us all the ammo and all the supplies we need to build the kingdom of me. That wasn't his intent. His intent was to enable us by his grace to continue to mortify or kill our lusts or our desires for our own kingdom, to heal our natures and to expand our affections for him, thereby making us and our affections fit for the fullness of his kingdom with him. That's what he was doing. While we were rejecting him. So that now, for you and I on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection. Let his blood be on us takes on an entirely different meaning. In Matthew chapter 27, when the crowd rejected the real Jesus and chose for himself one of comfort and desire in Barabbas and said, let the blood of Jesus, the Messiah, be on us. They said it in defiance. Now on this side, we get to say it in desperation, in hope, in delight. Let his blood be on us. Let it cover us. Let it cleanse us. Let it wash us. It's only by it that we are redeemed and made new by him. The song changes now by the grace of God. Jesus, let your blood cover us. Friends, as we move in a manner of days into Easter weekend, is this the cry and desire of your heart? Jesus, let your blood cover me. The the siren songs of our day are, are not going to stop singing until he returns. They're going to continue moment by moment trying to entice your heart in a direction that only leads to shipwreck. They're going to continue to entice your heart to embrace the wrong Jesus. Listen. The real Jesus is inviting you to the fullness of life with him. He held nothing back from you in his love towards you. Hosanna. Hosanna. Salvation is here. If anyone would come after me, be with me, follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Come with me. Let me pray for us this morning as we get ready to take a moment to just respond to God's word together. God, it takes the miraculous work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts to give us ears to hear with clarity, sharp clarity, your voice and your invitation to life with you. So many songs, so many competing, tempting narratives to life in this world. Lord, give us ears. Ears to hear your invitation. Give us eyes to see your glory and your Son, to see the real Jesus, to hear your voice, Holy Spirit.